Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Good morning and welcome to the Morning Briefing for Thursday, September 20th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we're going to talk about Blue Star Families. We're going to talk about that organization and what Blue Star Families are in general and basically how they are helping the families of those who serve, the families of veterans, an important group of people that we need to remember to celebrate, to assist, and all that good stuff. So we'll talk to Blue Star families coming up in just a little bit. And we're also going to have AMVET's new national commander in studio with us to talk to us about what he plans to do during his year in office. Each year, a new national commander comes in and has a a plan and they have a theme and they have something they want to do. What's his? Well, you're going to get to find out when the new national commander of AMVET's comes in with Joe Chinelli later on in the show. Right now is uh, ConnectingVets.com National Commander Jake Hughes. He was named as such a couple days ago. Congratulations on the promotion, National Commander. What is your theme for the next year at Connecting Vets? I'm the host of the show. You're fired. Wow. That means I can go home and go to sleep? Yep. All right. Here we go. You, yeah, don't try, yeah. don't try to like, play that card against me. You like, think I won't go home and get some sleep? <laughs> There's no job I could do where I wouldn't rather be sleeping. I, I guarantee you that is a fact. So, how you doing this morning, Jake? I'm doing pretty good, Eric. How are you? I'm all right. You know, it was an okay morning. Again, a painful drive into work. But what are you going to do? It happens when you live in a large city. Uh, in this large city where I live, speaking of the drive, oftentimes when I drive home, I drive by the Marine Corps barracks in Washington, D.C., Yesterday, the Marines at that barracks made some national headlines. Did you see this, Jake? Uh, No, I did not. What's going on? So there's a senior center a few blocks from the Marine Corps barracks in Washington, D.C. I didn't know it was there, but I drive by it every day. Now that I've seen the news, I went, oh, that's what that building is. I I had no idea. I drive by it. Not every day. Some days. Probably like 50% of the time, Waze takes me that way. 50% it takes me a different way. Uh, The senior center there caught on fire. Oh my gosh. Huge fire. Like I was looking at, at social media and like friends of the show, like Joe Plensler uh, was posting photos as he was sitting on Ida 295, I guess it is at that point of the smoke coming up and of the fire. And then you started seeing photos and video on social media of camouflage uniforms sprinting down the road. Yes. The Marines at the Marine Corps barracks in Washington, DC, which is just blocks away from where our studios are. They went to go to the sound of fire. 
literal fire in this place, not gunfire. But they ran down there, and this was a senior center where I believe from what I've been hearing, 80 to 90 different people there are non-ambulatory, meaning they can't move on their own. They require a wheelchair or some other sort of assistance. The Marines were going in and carrying people out of this burning building. Uh, just a, a, a great story that really shows what the Marines are all about, you know? Yeah, it shows what they're capable of. And like you mentioned, running towards fire, because that's pretty much what the Marines are designed to do, run towards gunfire. That's one of those things that, you know, it, it, how am I trying to put this? Goes it, against every instinct you have is to run away from fire. Yeah. Get away from the hot stuff. Yep. But, you know, they charge right into it. They heard about it, and they were running from it. It looked like a few blocks away. I don't know if they saw the smoke. I don't know if they got word of what was going on. I'm not sure how those Marines found out, but man, they were trucking. You can look at the videos uh, that people shot. You know, you see a, a group of 15 Marines sprinting down the street in Washington, D.C. with serious looks on their faces. You're probably going to pull out your camera and snap a few videos, snap a few photos. They went flying down there. They did uh, what they could to help. The fire department said they were very appreciative. They got everybody out of the fire. That's the good news. Uh, there was nobody left in there. One of the things I heard uh, this morning that the fire department says they don't have an explanation for yet is that the uh, residents didn't hear a fire alarm. Uh-oh. That's terrifying, particularly when it is a senior center. But you know what this reminds me of, the, seeing the Marines run in that video? What's that? That's in their commercials. You know the commercial where there's like war going on in the background and people running away from it screaming, and then the Marines are going the opposite direction. They're going in there. That may just seem like good marketing, but man, it's the truth. That's what the Marines are all about. I mean, I've I've heard stories and seen pictures and footage of, you know, a guy who was using the restroom at a uh, an operating base in Afghanistan that came under attack and basically like left his pants in there, just came out <laughs> in his undies to uh to fight the enemy. It's what the Marines do, whether it's going into battle or doing whatever they can to help their fellow Americans, and it was uh it was great to see. It was impressive to see. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, uh, again, how they found out about it, but they did find out about it, and that's a good thing. I don't know how Jake found out about this, but I heard that you found about some shop class in a high school someplace that's doing something pretty cool for veterans. Yes, I did. It is a uh, high school shop class in New Mexico, Okay. and what they did was they made 18 handcrafted wooden urns that are adorned with the symbols for the U.S. military branches, mm. and those are being used uh, to hold the remains of homeless and indigent veterans. That is awesome. Yep, uh, the shop class teacher uh, Gino Perez said that he wants to make he wanted to make it clear the, make it real clear the status of these Americans. They were homeless and they were veterans and they were buried with full military honors and no one claimed their bodies. It's sad when that happens, but we've talked about stories where it has happened before. Some of the people living at veterans' homes for extended periods of time. Uh, when they pass away, they, they're unable to find any relatives of them. Sometimes, I think most often, it is the homeless uh, veteran community where someone will pass away and maybe hasn't had any contact with their family forever. Of course, they're now dead, so they can't tell you where to find their family. It, sometimes the family doesn't even exist. I mean, think of when we talked to Dan Lamoth from the Washington Post, the Letters from War podcast that they made. An amazing story, an amazing podcast, by the way. Check it out, Letters from War from uh, the Washington Post, Dan Lamoth, who's their uh, top military correspondent over there. That family doesn't exist anymore for all intents and purposes. There are uh, none of them still around. It does happen 
but I mean, I, that's, that's who normally would celebrate you when you pass away. That's who normally would do something for you. And it's great to see these kids doing something. So the people who don't have a family anymore can, can get some of that. Yeah. And there's others, there's a group in, uh, Santa Fe or in New Mexico called the Forgotten Heroes Burial Program. And what they do is, uh, in a homeless, an honorably discharged homeless or injured veteran dies, they will provide them with a full military honors funeral if no family members or friends are there to claim the remains or if there's no money provided for them. And they do the full thing, the three-volley salute, the governor gives a eulogy, and they invite the public to be a part of it. And it's just, it's one of those things that goes to show because there are, let me see if, the, if I'm finding the story right. On any given night in America, there are more than 40,000 homeless veterans yeah. in America. That we know of. Again, yeah. it's very hard because sometimes uh, when you're dealing with homeless people, you're dealing with people who don't want you to know anything about their background. Um, as odd as it may seem, some people choose to be homeless. Some people are dealing, uh, most people, I think, who end up homeless uh, on the streets as we think of homelessness are dealing with mental health issues. And then there's the ways that we don't think of homelessness that we've talked about so many times. Those who are couch surfing, those who are you know, moving from family to family, friend to friend, finding a place to live that's not a home. You know, It's not a place where they are living. It's not a permanent residence for them. So it's very hard to get a handle on what the numbers are. And when it's that hard, when you're talking about, you know, people who don't want to be known, it could be any number. It could be 80% of veterans. Obviously, it's not. But it could be anything. We just don't know. 40,000 is an estimate. And, and that's just a, it's a high number. I mean, yeah, it's a small percentage of the population and a small percentage of the veteran population. But 40,000 people, uh, that's a good-sized city. You know, 40,000 people in a city is a pretty decent sized city. I, it's sad to me that there's those people out there. And it's even sadder the ones who don't have a family, don't have any friends, don't have anyone who can give them a proper send off. And it's really great that there's organizations like that one. And it's great also that these high school kids are making this project. I mean, that that is, boy, that's putting shop class to some good use. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's better than what we used to make. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Birdhouse. I, we have like eight birdhouses in my backyard. I don't think we needed any more birdhouses. I think I made a bench once. <laughs> a bench? Yeah, a Did bench that was it? actually, it, I, I, I measured it wrong, so it was a little wobbly. But my making, parents, my parents freaking loved it, and they they shut up all down. Oh, look at the bench that Jake made! <laughs> Don't sit on it; you will die. This thing will yeah. collapse into shattered, splintered wood that will stab you in the jugular. But but look at it because Jake exactly. made it, and it's great. I remember making ashtrays. Do you remember that? Yes, Can I made. You imagine I made I made an ashtray from my, my grandmother who smoked for. God knows how long. I used to make her ashtrays all the time, and eventually she got to, stop making those for me. I'm trying to quit. I made a ton of ashtrays, and nobody in my family smoked. I took up smoking <laughs> later on uh, and never had any of the ashtrays that I made. But I remember at summer camp and at school art class, imagine these days if someone was making an ashtray. Like, you may as well be making a heroin needle in, in shop class. Like yeah. People do not look on smoking very kindly these days. But when we were kids, hey, make an ashtray for your family. They'll appreciate it and love it as they smoke. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. Times change. And here's a sign of change. There is one U.S. military site that's been built in Poland, Jake. Uh, this is um, a support, naval support f facility, Red Zawoko. Well, guess what? Now they're talking about a second site. It'll cost $2 billion to build. It's a permanent base in Poland, and it's been offered by the Polish that they will call it Fort Trump. 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> I just saw that headline and was like, oh, we need to talk about this. Oh, yes. Here, here's the thing. There are a lot of people who are going to be like, what? Why Why on earth would you do that? Well, one, it's the polls, like Polish President Andrzej Duda, who is the one who suggested this, and he offered to call it Fort Trump. They want that base to be built there. It's $2 billion base, a permanent facility. That means American military members are over there with American military dollars and their BAH and their BAS and all that stuff. So it's beneficial to Poland, and I think they're trying to appeal to the president. Like, hey, what about President Trump post or Ford post? There's a way, and if you're going to attract a president, his ego is probably the way to do it. I'd say the same goes for most presidents, uh, past well, yeah. presidents. The current one, maybe more so than, <laughs> than usual. But yeah, you've got to have a massive ego to ever want to do that job. But uh, this is uh, an interesting thing. They're moving more military facilities to Eastern Europe. That started years ago when there were some disagreements with Germany and the United States. And the United States, essentially, we said, all right, you know, all those bases that we've got that add to your economy and all those things. Well, maybe we'll start moving some of those to uh, Poland or places like that. And it started. It's, it's happened. There's now one uh, full-time facility in Poland. Again, that is uh, Naval Support Facility Red Zwoko, uh, which is going to house an, uh, an Aegis Ashore system. So it's a radar system, essentially. That's not a... Not a very big base. They broke ground on it in 2016. This new one, Fort Trump, boy, that would upset a lot of people, wouldn't it? It would be beautiful. It would be beautiful how many people it would upset. Because, I mean, I know I try to stay apolitical on the show, but i got to say with the fervor that you see from people who just absolutely loathe the president, (laughs) they also happen to be the people that are the funniest when they get upset. I'm sorry, but it's true. There's some of that going on. And then you have the fact that when you look at the – uh, the support polls for the president, he's not doing too bad with the U.S. military. So I don't know. The people stationed there. So be a fort. So you're talking army over there. That's who uh, That's who mans the forts. Uh, I, you know, we, I don't think that the people stationed over there would care one way or the other. You could change the name of any place that I was stationed, and I couldn't give – I couldn't care less. Yeah. Could not care less. By the way, that's the expression. Couldn't care less. means – there's no way to care less. If you say, I could care less, it means, well, there, I, there, I care a little bit more. I, I had a platoon sergeant that would, every time we had a mission briefing, would use could care less and also irregardless. Yeah. That used to irk me so much. I'm, I'm a grammar uh, police person. I try not to do it on social media because it's just annoying, unless someone's really uh, irritated me, in which case, uh, oh, I will go after them and I can apart your sentences very quickly so voluptuous oh god there's no m in that word there may be an m in you because if you're describing yourself as voluptuous you're probably a little bit lumpy but there's no m in it there's other things like oh my biggest one set foot that's the term set foot not stepped foot you don't step your foot you set your foot Remember it, learn it, live it, love it. You were just talking about someone at the uh, the briefings that you had talking about, uh, you know, using poor grammar. Irregardless, I could care less what you do. Oh, you could care less? Well, let's make that happen. That's what you would say to him. It's been, I think, two or three weeks now since the Army announced that they were doing away with the weekend safety briefing, Jake. I have not heard any reports of the uh, army apocalypse that every sergeant major was assuring uh, us was coming. <laughs> what did you think? Uh, what do you think about this? Three weeks in or whatever it is, it's still happening in some places, not happening in others. 
Do you think that we're we're just not being given the news that these basically uh, army bases are burning down to the ground because they didn't do the safety briefing? Probably pretty much because the purpose of a safety briefing is not it's not so a troop can learn. Oh my god! Wait, wait, wait! I'm not supposed to drink and drive. I thought that was okay. No, the purpose is to cover your butt. Is to say, hey, we told you not yeah. to do this stupid thing, and then you went and did this stupid thing. Now we can nail you to the wall. And I'm telling you, as soon as the DUI start rolling in, they're going to be back. Here's the thing. I don't think the rates are going to go up. I don't think so. They're, well, they're not going to go up, but the fact that they keep happening is... But, yeah, but it happens everywhere. I mean, you know, I mean, you can't... It, that that And that's what I think the Army is trying to say here is this stuff happens every... It doesn't matter if it's military. It doesn't matter if it's officer enlisted. We, I, I know plenty of officers got DUIs and stuff like that while I was in. I don't think the numbers are going to go up, and I think that's going to be able to uh, to be proven. But I do think that anytime there's a major case, you're absolutely right that your command sergeant major types and some of your colonels and people like that will be like, oh, you see, you see, if we had a safety brief, then this fatal car accident wouldn't have happened, which is, of course, nonsense. This I, we, we didn't do it weekly in the Navy. We had something called a safety stand down. We would do before holidays, basically. Like if it, if it was a period where a lot of people were taking leave, uh, like Christmas, for example, there was always a holiday safety stand down before the Christmas leave period. They would basically try to scare you into not leaving the house while you were on leave. The Army, though, doing it every week. You guys had to do that every week? Yeah, and we also did safety stand downs. They really didn't trust you guys. Nope, and I, and I saw that. That's like when, when I was at uh, the Defense Information School, the Army student cadre were the most restricted out of everybody there. Up until the last couple of weeks that they were at school, they were still in a, a basic training status, essentially, right? Yep. Yeah. We didn't have that. We had like a week or two where you had to get some qualifications signed off, and then uh, and then there you were. There was another story I know you wanted to talk about, Jake, this one dealing with veterans. Yes, this also this is a really cool story. Uh, this comes out of uh, California, and what it is is two Vietnam veterans who have uh, recently met each other again after nearly 50 years and they met because one of them is donating a kidney to the other uh, Doug Kaufman donated a kidney to Jim McGee on Tuesday just three months after they reunited since the last seeing each other in 1971 uh, McGee said that we haven't seen each other face to face until we met in Monterey about three months ago Doug at that point volunteered a kidney to me and it's the gift of life and it's one of these things that uh, he, uh, McGee had to go undergo during your now, uh, urinalysis. This is again, we're on safety briefing. So I'm thinking urinalysis <laughs> dialysis three times a week, waiting for a new kidney. He had kidney failure yeah. and this one of his old army buddies just randomly met him and decided, Oh, okay. You need a kidney. Well, we're a complete match here. Have mine. That is pretty crazy. And, and if you try to put yourself in that situation, it's a difficult situation because I mean, if it's like, if it's my son, I don't care if he needs my brain and I'm going to be dead. He gets it like that. That's all there is to it. Other than my son, um, my wife, uh, you know, be, those two people really, because you know, my parents, they've lived long and fruitful lives. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> Halfway kidding there. Um, would you, would you do that? Do you think that for somebody that like you served with in the military, do you think that you would possibly, um, that you would possibly give a kidney or something like that to one of your, uh, your shipmates in the army? 
I know one. What the hell? Well, I'm, 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 sorry. I'm sorry. It's LeBron James is on the TV with Bugs Bunny and Don. Don't Daffy look at the Duff. TVs, Jake. Come on, keep it here. Sorry. Keep it here. Okay. Keep your sorry focus. about that. Anyway, I have one buddy that I would donate a kidney for. One. Oh, thanks, and that's Jake. You know, I appreciate that you would do that for me. And when I think about donating a kidney to you, uh, no, I, no, that's my kidney. You don't get it. But the fact that you would give me yours, I just, just makes me feel so happy. You can have. You can have. Uh, I'll pick off a scab and. You you can have that for like genetic material. Oh, but you said there was one buddy you would give a kidney to, and and um. Well, you both are overweight, so I guess it works. <laughs> oh, wow! There's. I the... say with my gigantic gut. Hey, pot, how you doing over there? I'm yeah. the kettle. <laughs> What's going on, man? How's it? How's it going? What you doing? Uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I I don't know, man. It's one of those things. Like, well, first off. Half of my stuff doesn't work the way it should. I'm always in pain and getting old and all that good stuff. But, you know, if I were a good match for someone who uh, who I really liked and who I enjoyed, and if it was going to mean the difference between life and death for them, then, uh, you know, yeah, I would, of course, consider it. Wouldn't even question it for, for my son, my wife. Uh, yeah, but it's still... It is like, oh, come on, man, that's mine. Don't I need two kidneys? If I didn't need two kidneys, how come I got two kidneys? Well, yeah, it's the th thing of I would have to calculate how much distress this would cause me <clears throat> yeah. in my life. Like, would I have to now start doing dialysis every now and then? Or Because that those are big honking needles. For dialysis, they're like the oh, size yeah. of your pinky. Where they basically, they, they cycle your kidneys. I mean, yeah. your kidneys aren't working, so they go in and do it for yeah, you. Yeah, they cycle it's... all of your blood out of your body. I've seen people, yeah. they have like pinky-sized veins in their arms because they have the constant, yeah. it's like, eh, nope. Mm -mm. My stepfather-in-law, who's, uh, you know, uh, he, he's older and he's going through that uh, occasionally now. And it's, yeah, it's an unpleasant process. And it's something that I wouldn't like to go through. You know what I worry about, though? Let's say uh, Jake tomorrow has uh, some horrible accident where he gets hit by a car and his kidney goes flying out of his body and gets smushed and they're like well jake needs a kidney uh you're a match i guess it would require both of your kidneys to be known. so both of jake's kidneys were smushed out of his body somehow by Just a car popped out my ears yeah the red, that's how it works i'm pretty exactly. sure there's a direct line from your kidneys that's to a your community ears. college biology course that's how it works <laughs> if if I give a kidney to you, that's one of my two. Now, I've got one left, and I guess that's enough to go with, uh, apparently, because people donate them. What if that one for me then starts having a problem? Can I then be like, uh, all right, give <laughs> <laughs> <Get> it back. <laughs> you repo your kidney? Yeah. Like, I, you know, would could we, if I did that for you, Jake, I would make sure that there was some sort of, uh, like, a prenup type of deal. Like, <laughs> if my surviving kidney has issues... You're donating that one back, and I'm sorry, man. You got to find another one. There's actually a horror movie with that plot called Repo: The Genetic Opera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that one. It was it was there for a while. So uh, there are a lot of issues and questions that come up with this, and that's an interesting one. It's a funny one, of course. I'm kidding. I would never give Jake one of my kidneys, but it's. I would it's never one of, ask for one of your one, kidneys. You wouldn't want one of my kidneys. Yeah, Wait, no. Is the kidney the thing that? Uh, that deals with alcohol? No, that's the liver. liver. I think my kidneys are probably fine. Yeah, you can just, I'd stay away from that liver, though. I mean, 13, <laughs> 13 years in the Navy, you know what I'm saying? Uh, speaking of the Navy, uh, moving to a much darker topic, a sad topic. A young sailor has been identified after being struck by a propeller on the aircraft carrier George H.W. Bush. Uh, this was this past Monday. His name was aviation bosun's mate, airman apprentice Joseph Min Naglock. He was an ABH. Uh, it's a it's a bosun's mate handling. So essentially, they're the ones who move the aircraft from uh, the hangar deck up to the flight deck, move them into position on the flight deck. Uh, they drive little um, 
um, tow trucks essentially around as well. They do some of it by hand. It's a dangerous job and it's a difficult job. I mean, you talk about dangerous and dirty jobs. Aircraft flight deck ops uh, on a carrier is incredibly dangerous because you do have these planes that have propellers. When you think of an aircraft carrier, what sort of plane do you think of taking off from? Immediately, the first thing that pops in my head is F-14. And then you start hearing Kenny Loggins in the exactly. background. Quietly. Exactly. Fly through the danger zone. Here's the thing. We have propeller aircraft like the E2C Hawkeye, which I, is yeah, the I recently saw a video online of, of a, a propeller a propeller plane that came in for a landing and missed the hook, and it like fell underneath the view of the deck for like a good five seconds before it, it popped back, back up. up. Yeah. Watching one of them take off from a flight deck of a carrier, uh, again, I've only done it on video. I was never on a carrier for more than like a day or two. Watching them take off is insane because when they take off, particularly the propeller aircraft like the E2C... They go off the flight deck and they drop down. It's not they're not moving fast enough to get like immediate liftoff. So they drop down. You can't see him, and then you're like, "Is he going to come back up?" And there he goes, and he does come back up. It's not like the fighter jets who have, you know, they're hitting a, a pretty quick speed right away and start going up. These are propeller aircraft, which are incredibly dangerous. I mean, yes, there's the video that you've probably seen of the guy getting sucked through the intake on the F-14. Yeah. Survived, amazingly. Like, just went went in and didn't die. Don't know how. Propeller aircraft, if one of those props hits you, it's not good, man. I've only seen it happen once, uh, and it wasn't on a carrier. It was a naval air station, Keflavik, uh, with one of our NATO allies, uh, was was hit by a propeller while we were up there. And uh, you're seeing what happens with that. It is horrifying. And this young airman apprentice which means he's less than a year into his Navy career. Man. Uh, ABHAA Joseph Min Naglock uh, passed away after being struck by the turning propeller of an E2C Hawkeye on September 17th, so just three days ago on Monday, after securing the aircraft to the flight deck. So he had already secured the aircraft, you know, chalked it down, uh, and then this happens. Just a horrible story, and our thoughts go out to the family of uh, Airman Apprentice Naglock out there. And a reminder that, you know, we all need to stay safe. Safety briefings or not, do what you can to watch out for yourself and your shipmates and make sure they're taken care of, your fellow soldiers, Marines, and so on. And that's what we're trying to do at ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day with things that can keep them safe, keep them healthy, keep them happy, keep them employed. Be sure to check out ConnectingVets.com and follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Coming up shortly, we're going to have Blue Star families in with us. And later on, we're going to have the new national commander of actually no you know what we're going to do that i think in the next segment i'm not sure how it's going to work out you'll come back and we'll be here it's the morning <laughs> briefing eric dame jq is back after this we're cbs radio's connectingvets.com connecting vets every day online and all over social media facebook youtube instagram and twitter at connecting vets Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is our slogan, and it's what we do. And why do we do it? Well, it's because each and every member of our team is very closely connected to the military. The vast majority of us know exactly what it's like to put that uniform on every day and what it's like to take it off that very last time. The struggles that face veterans and our families when we leave the military, they can be daunting, but... 
With our team helping you, you can live that best veteran life with all the great information, news, benefits. It's all available for you at ConnectingVets.com. Coincidentally, you can find us on social media where we are at Connecting Vets. Our next guest is a military spouse and the founder and CEO of Blue Star Families who are doing some amazing work on behalf of the veteran community. She is Kathy roth Duque and joins us now on The Morning Briefing. Kathy, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing great. It's terrific to be here. Well, we appreciate your time. And as I mentioned, you have a long history with the military. While you didn't put on the uniform yourself, you were certainly serving alongside your spouse. So give us just the brief background of how you became a military spouse and, and what you did during the years that you were serving in that capacity. I married my husband in uh, 1997. We ha- I did not come from a military background, um, but I went to a ball at the U.S. Embassy in Manila in the Philippines, and I met a very dashing Marine officer. So this was when I was working at the Clinton White House. Um, so my life took a very different turn. I, I became a Marine Corps spouse. Uh, this was, of course, before 9-11. Uh, but after 9-11, I- you know, the intensity of what it was to be part of a military family and to support that mission uh, really moved me, and it became my mission, too. So we moved nine times in one 15-year period to four countries, three continents, five states. My husband deployed uh, to combat four times. We had children who we moved around to many schools, and uh, that uh, journey is what led me to create Blue Star Families. And of course, Blue Star Families is an organization, you're the founder and CEO, that's doing amazing work on behalf of military families. But if someone walks up to you, Kathy, and says, what exactly is Blue Star Families? For those who are totally uninitiated, what do you tell someone who's not familiar with the organization about exactly what it is that you all do? Sure. Blue Star Families um, supports active duty guard and reserve wounded and transitioning service members and their families. And our mission is to tell the story of military service today and to create solutions in communities where people live with, with the members of those communities and drawing on the veterans as well to help create that bridge. And of course, there are many ways that that can be done. What are some of the specialties of Blue Star Families as far as the programs and services that you're able to provide to military families? Yeah, the way we go about doing this is we, we listen to the problems we um, uh, and, and finding out what's going on today. What are the biggest challenges today? We make solutions through partnerships um, with corporations, with uh, governments, with other nonprofits, and we drive those solutions in the community. We find through our national survey, which gets released in Congress every year, which I briefed the Secretary of Defense on, we find out that the big issues facing military families today are economic insecurity and social isolation. And so we address those through our chapters, which are in 32 um, states and four um, overseas countries. And then we have really robust programs in uh, spouse employment and also in areas that bring people together. We work with folks like Disney, like Facebook, uh, like uh, uh, Microsoft to create programs that really Uh, connect people within their communities. When it comes to those military families and the struggles that they face, as you just were telling us, whether it's economically or otherwise, what are some of the ways that you've you've noticed that families are best able to overcome and how are people best able to help them? What do we need to do to help the military families thrive after they leave the military or while they're currently serving? 
Yeah, you know, one thing is we find we need to help them while they're currently serving because, you know, as you you probably know from your own service, today's military don't live on base anymore. 80% are off base. They're in communities and fewer and fewer are able to access um, installation resources or because they're, um, you know, millennials, they don't necessarily want to. So they're in communities. 75% of them have been there less than two years. Most of them are experiencing really high levels of separation. Almost half of our families have had over six months of separation in the last year and a half. So this is making life really tough for families. Being part of one of our chapters, joining one of our chapters so you can connect to the military folks in your community, especially for your um, listeners who are veterans who can really understand their lives and, and be a support for them, that's a really meaningful thing. So we find that our chapters are um, excellent supports for folks. Another thing that we find is that Spouse employment is really crippling today's military because today's families need two incomes. A military salary is just not enough to provide the American dream for a household without support. And although most of our spouses are educated and credentialed, we have incredibly high unemployment and underemployment rates, more than 20% unemployment when the overall society is 3.9%. So Blue Star Families has some really robust programs to not only um, identify those spouses and employers, but to actually place folks into employment that works for them. We're speaking with Kathy roth Duque, founder and CEO of Blue Star Families, a Marine Corps spouse herself. You know, I think something that you mentioned there, Kathy, is very interesting, and that's the understanding that veterans have. And even myself, I, I met my wife shortly after I left the Navy, but with, mm. with hindsight being what it is, that being 2020, I can't imagine having to put her through what she would have gone through. Had she moved, I think it was six or seven times in 13 years that I did, why do you think it is important that those of us who have a better understanding of that reach back to help those who are going to be in our situation in the coming years that are currently serving on active duty now? Yeah, you know, the, the veterans today can really extend their mission to, to the country by by helping to be that understanding support to the people who are currently serving. Because with our, you know, 1% of people serving, it's very easy to feel isolated in your community. It's easy to feel like the people around you don't understand. And um, with the families being so uh, disconnected, right now we're finding that the number one reason that otherwise promotable service people leave service is because they're concerned about their family's well-being. Um, they leave because their spouses have careers and they don't want to disrupt them or because their kids have just gone to too many schools. My daughter, when she was 10th grade, was starting her 10th school. But we also see at the same time that military people love the mission. And if they can feel their families are okay, then they're, they can keep doing it. So when we look at our surveys and we say, do you feel connected in your community? More than half say, no, we don't. When we ask them, have you spoken to someone who's not currently connected to the military in the last month? 30% say they haven't even had that conversation. And those people who are disconnected are the ones who are doing the least well. So by being that veteran who is that, you know, um, that bridge to the civilian community, you can say, hey, not only do I understand you, but I'm also part of the larger society that supports you and we, we can help you get through this. Of course, you don't need to be a veteran, though, to support military families or even veteran families. And there's actually a, a new program, as I understand it, through Blue Star Families called the Neighbors Program. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what you aim to accomplish through this new program? 
Yeah, we're so excited about the Blue Star Neighbors program because for us, it really is the solution to the problem. Most people solve problems for people they know, right? And when the military becomes a cul-de-sac, when we just know each other, that we don't have access to all the ideas or connections when you retire and if you want to start a business, you don't have necessarily access to the you know, sources of investment income or some of the other ideas. So if we can connect the neighbors who have this feeling of goodwill towards the military, but they don't know what to do, if we can make it easy and fun for them to connect to the, the currently serving and transitioning military in their community, then not only do we help the military, but we really help the neighbor too. What we find for the people who participate with us as Blue Star Neighbors is that they feel they get much more out of the program than they give just from getting to be part of the mission of serving the country that they feel they're part of when they connect through our community. So that's the Blue Star Neighbor Program, and it's on our website. Anyone, veteran or non-veteran, can participate in it. That sounds like something that we need more of, you know, building these bridges of understanding between the military and veteran communities and the civilian community. Is that a big part of what Blue Star Families and particularly this Neighbors Program is about, kind of normalizing those military families and letting people realize, hey, they're just like you and I. They just uh, happen to do a slightly different job than we do. That's exactly right. You know, it, it, it is normalizing, and I love that word. It's saying this is this is a normal part of our country, and we need to be connected into it, um, both for their sake and for our sake, so that we understand that this is what we do as a country, is, you know, the missions that we send folks on. Not only will it help the, our communities, and not only will it help the individual families who are doing better, but it'll, it'll help the country as a whole, because we'll make people smarter about this work that we do that after all civilians need to control the military and they can't control something they don't know or understand. We're speaking with Kathy Roth Duque. She is the founder and CEO of Blue Star Families. Kathy, as you mentioned, you're a chapter based organization. If people are hearing this and they're interested in it and they're they're saying like, hey, I want to find one of these Blue Star Families chapters, where do they go to find out that information and find the closest one to them? Yep. Come to our website, bluestarfam.org, or just Google Blue Star Families, and you can see on our website where all of our chapters are. We're always creating new ones. We have um, wonderful help from uh, terrific sponsors such as uh, Boeing and Macy's Wounded Warrior Project who are helping us build those chapters. So um, even if one isn't on there right now, let us know you want to see one in your area and we can create that. We also have what we call a virtual chapter where you can interact with people across the country. So we have a a mentorship platform where you can mentor military spouses or transitioning veterans who are trying to find jobs, speak to them once a week or once a month and help people with that connection and share your insights um, and other terrific opportunities to um, participate wherever you are and whether there's a chapter or not. If someone out there is listening to this and they're not sure if they're the person who should reach out to Blue Star Families, let's go into that. Exactly who should be reaching out to their local Blue Star Families chapter? What we say is anything you have to give, there's a military family who can receive it. We have a wonderful program where we have celebrity chefs cooking with military chefs at one of our neighbor celebrations to show if you're a great cook, you know, cooking with a military family uh, you know, sharing a meal, that's a great thing. We have a program where we recognize outstanding Blue Star neighbors. We have military folks from around the country nominate a neighbor who made a difference to them during a challenging time in their military life. And we've honored people who just, you know, plowed someone's um, driveway while 
the dad was deployed, um, a reservist was gone for a year or helped out with a business, again, for another reservist family who had to deploy and was at risk of losing their business. Pretty much anything you have to give, if you're a coach, if you're a, um, a chess master, we have a, a gentleman here in Virginia who's a chess master. He teaches chess to military kids um, uh, once a week. Uh, really, there's a way everyone can give in a little way or a big way. There's, there's room for this community. Whether it's in that little way or that big way, it is important to give back and helping out the military and veteran families. There's there's few things that I think would be better to give back to. And certainly when we talk about Blue Star families, they are doing things in a big way. We've been speaking with Kathy Roth Duque, the founder and CEO of that organization. Kathy, once again, what's the website if people want to find out more about Blue Star families? Come to www.bluestarfam.org or just Google Blue Star Families. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for your time today. And more importantly, thank for what thank you for what you're doing for the military and veteran families out there. And thanks for this great program that you have and your website. It's something that we recommend to folks as well. I think you do great work. Jake, to me, it's fantastic that there is an organization, and we are back in studio with Jake, super producer Hughes, that there's an organization like Blue Star Families that's working to kind of bridge that gap and bridge the divide between uh, the military and civilian communities, not just the soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coasties, and so on, but the families. We sometimes forget about the fact that there are uh, families that are along with those those service members who life is difficult for them, man. Yeah, and uh, I know my mom was a member of the Blue Star Mothers for the longest time when I was in the Army. And right. uh, she's, <laughs> we used to joke that uh, I asked her if she wanted me to upgrade her to the Gold Star families. And, and she initially <laughs> oh, said, oh, that'd be great. How do I do that? And then I told her, and then she started crying. And Jeez, it was, Jake, what a horrible joke. Yeah, Why would I know. you do that to your mother? I mean, it's kind of hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hilarious time. looking back. Yeah. But. So Blue Star Families, and again, you can check them out, bluestarfam.org. Um, you can also find them on uh, Twitter. They are at Blue Star Family. Uh, they give a lot of good information out there. They're doing a lot of good things, holding a lot of events. They actually just in the last day put out that their uh, most recent Blue Star Family survey shows that military families use social media 30% more than Americans as a whole. Think about how often Americans use social media. <laughs> I mean, Jake, every day I'm on there and I see Jake Hughes posting stuff about like, boy, you know, I wish that Lorenzo Lamas would get another TV show. All the interesting thoughts that come out of Jake Hughes's mind. Um, more, the, more so Antonio Sabato Jr. Oh, yeah. Who can forget about him? Underwear model and actor. Just talent all over the oh, place. Oh, yes. The fact that military families use it 30% more, when I saw that, I went, wow, really? 30% more? That seems a, a bit much. But then consider the fact that you have deployments to deal with. And when you're over there, uh, my number one means of communicating with my family when I was in Afghanistan uh, uh, was social media. It was Facebook. I would send a Facebook message and be like, hey, you know, if you don't hear from me for the next couple of days, don't worry. I'm just going outside the wire. I'll be back. I'll let you know. I can't tell you anything more than that, but just giving a heads up, things like that. Um, email. Yeah, my official email would sometimes block things coming in from civilian email addresses, so that was difficult. I, even when I was overseas, social media was how I kept in touch with my friends and all that stuff. It makes sense that they would use it 30% more in what's, again, just a difficult life. And I'm glad I didn't have to put my family through that. I've said many times the fact that these kids are switching schools every three, four years maximum. I mean, oh, that's yeah. the longest you're going to be in a school. 
So unless you arrive at a high school at the beginning of your freshman year, you're not going to stay in that same high school. And even if you do, there's a good chance that you won't because there are some duty stations where it's only two years, three years where you can be there. I, it's just it's a rough life. And it makes sense that that's how they would keep in touch with their friends, with their family members, with all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense. And I see this is how old I am. When I deployed, there was no social media. My second deployment, we had MySpace. But mm. other, but first deployment, it was all phones. That's why my mom always took the mentality of no news is good news. Like, if, as long as she... Because if, if, if something bad happened, the Army would have let her know. But if I went through, like, three weeks where I couldn't find time to get to the phone center, then, like, I'm not dead. I'm just busy. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess that's that's one way to look at it. No news can be good news. It can be bad news. But it's difficult to stay in touch with people when you're deployed. I mean, even when I wasn't in uh, Afghanistan, when I was stationed in Guam, you're like 14, 15 hours ahead. I mean, it's, it's, it's a different day half the time in Guam, literally. More yeah. than half the time. It's a different day. Uh, it's where America's day begins. So it would be uh, difficult for, not so difficult for me to figure out when to call people because, you know, I was living there. I knew uh, what the difference was and all that good stuff. The problem that would pop up is people calling me and having no idea how to do the math. It was like I'd get calls at, at 11 o'clock at night when I'm trying to sleep because I got PT at 4 a.m. from friends back home. Like, hey, man. A question for you that car you used to drive well what it's like you just woke <laughs> me up for that man oh it's nighttime there it's morning here like yes yes i thought you is. were down the street it can be a difficult thing but you know it, it's one of those things that you have to deal with you have to find a way when you're in europe you're anywhere from five to eight hours ahead depending on where you are in europe uh, that can be difficult. When you get over to Asia, the other side of the world, then it gets a little bit more sketchy with yep. the time differences and stuff. What was the time difference in uh, in Iraq to the U.S.? It's not that much different than Europe. Isn't it like eight hours or something I like that? I think it's like, like nine or ten hours. Is it? Huh, yeah, I guess that would make sense. It, it's, it's been a long time, but I, that's what I think I remember. It makes me think, and I'm not even sure about Guam, I think it's a 15-hour difference, but I'm not 100% sure either. I know that Korea was about... 11 or 12. Let's look it up right yeah. now. Guam. Time difference from New York. So again, 14 hours ahead of New York. So 14 hour time difference. I was pretty close. 14 hours. Uh, and then we could see, ooh, let's see Iraq time difference. Let's see how good Jake's memory is. How good do you think it was? Probably not so good. No, I was right. Seven hours ahead of New York. So here's the thing, though. You didn't. You're not from New York. I'm from Texas, so that added hour brings it to eight, eight hours. There you go. See, I thought it was like seven or eight. You said nine or ten. So still, I was right. But that's that's okay. You were close. Anyway, as you said, you and your little needling it was, technicalities. It was a long time, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about your feelings. I'm talking about the facts. You know yeah. what I mean? You're technically correct, which was, is the best kind of correct. Yes, technically correct is the best kind of correct. Actually, um, Jake, uh, you, as you said, it was a while back and before the days where social media was really a thing. I mean, I got my first MySpace page when I was in Sicily, 2003 to 2005. So somewhere in that time frame, I think probably about 2004. Um I miss Tom from from 
he was always in your top eight. I don't think you could remove him. Or no, I think you could eventually remove Tom from your top eight. But yeah, Tom from MySpace sold that site at just the right time. Sold it. It's changed hands a whole bunch of times. But anyway, I had MySpace. I got invites from friends to join MySpace and Friendster at the same time. I chose MySpace because it turned out I looked and I was like, oh, I got more friends on here than I do on the other one. Good choice. MySpace and people hear Friendster and go, what the heck is Friendster? It was a social media thing that came out and then it died. And then it wasn't until four or five years later that I had a Facebook page. Yeah, I developed my first Facebook page when I was at the Defense Information School in 2009. Yeah, so I was in Greece from 2008 to 2009, so it would have been somewhere in there. I think late 2008. I think on Christmas leave, I was just bored and sitting in my apartment (laughs) and like, well, let's try out this Facebook thing. Then let's go play some World of Warcraft. But anyway, the point is Blue Star Family is doing some really great things to help bridge that divide and help the understanding that Military families aren't any different from anybody else. They just have to go through some different things and they move around a lot. And that can be difficult where, you know, starting relationships over again. I mean, look at, look at uh, you, you moved up here. How many of your neighbors do you know? Not many. Yeah. I mean, you, and you don't have the added advantage that I do of a spouse who might run into people, a son who goes to school. So we know the school families and all that stuff. It's kind of hard for uh, for for veterans and, and military members who are moving around to make those connections. But there are organizations like Blue Star Families out there trying to help make that happen and give you the information that can help you and, and get you uh, to where you want to be living that some semblance of a normal life. You know, I mean, I know people who left the military short of retirement easily could have gone to do like they were 14 years in and had to make and they were like, I just can't put my family through it again and left the military for those family reasons. It's something we talked about with Senator Perdue from Georgia. He wants to make it more appealing to our military members to stay in. And to do that, he thinks you target the families. You make life better for the families, and then the service member is more likely to stay in. And I certainly agree with that. And that's, again, another part of what Blue Star Families is doing. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's one of those things that really makes me feel good because... I know what my mother had to go through as a blue star mother, and that's just my mother. You know, yeah. this is, she she didn't follow me around as much as she probably would have loved to, <laughs> but you know, she stayed home. But she had to deal with the stress of having a son in the military, and so they helped her out. So I can only imagine what it would do for a spouse or a child. Right. So blue star families, and you can again check out their website bluestarfam.org. They are Blue Star Families on Twitter. Check them out and see what they are doing. Taking a look around, seeing if there's any news stories that we want to talk about today. Uh, the Air, For- Air Force, sorry, the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, Kayleth Wright, was speaking to the Air Force Association's Airspace and Cyber Conference in Maryland, so just down the street, National Harbor, Maryland. It's really right across the street from Washington, D.C. Well, across the water from Washington, D.C. It's a cool place says the Air Force needs hybrid airmen to prepare for possibly devastating war. Jake, what do you think we should hybridize our airmen with? Like lizards so that they can uh, they can uh, adapt to uh, the heat or maybe with birds so that we don't need the aircraft anymore? We just I have think some sort of canine, like wolves or foxes, because they'd be adorable. A wolf. Oh, that is an interesting one. That's an idea, Jake. That's an idea. So they get that pack mentality, you know? I think that would be more who you'd hybridize like the Marines with. True. A wolf. A wolf and a bulldog. Can you get like a bulldog wolf marine or something like that? <laughs> Let's see if we can work that out. So, I, of course, that's not what he was referring to. But when you when you see a statement like that, like hybrid airmen 
We're going to mix them with bald eagles. They'll be the most American thing ever, and they'll just fly into the war zone and drop that yes. stuff over. Of course, he's talking about <clears throat> Air Force leadership's call to get the service ready for the possibility of conflict with a great power nation such as China or Russia. Again, <clears throat> they've made improvements. The Chinese, not, not necessarily the Russians. They made quite a few improvements uh, militarily over the last few years, but there's still such a gap between the two that, I mean, if it happens, yeah, it's going to be serious, and hopefully it won't involve nuclear weapons, but there's a chance that it would. Uh, it's just one of those things where you see hybrid airmen, and they're talking about airmen who are uh, um, not specialized. They know how to do several things, and that's what they're talking about. I still say mixing our airmen with the bald eagle is the right way to go. Yep, I do agree. We're going to be back with AMVETS and their new national commander in studio right after this. It's the morning briefing. Stick around. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. ConnectingVets.com as your website. Created by veterans for veterans. ConnectingVets.com and our team are working tirelessly every day to get you the information you need to live your best veteran life. That goes for veteran families, veteran friends, everyone tied to veterans out there. We've got something for you. And you can keep up to date on what we're doing by following us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guests, yeah, that's right, we have two. One of them is a very special guest. One of them we see all the time. The specialness is, has just rubbed off slightly. I've also known him for 20 years, but he is the executive director of AMVETS, Mr. Joe Schinelli, Marine Corps veteran. More importantly, some might say much more importantly, we are now welcoming the newly elected national commander of AMVETS, Reg Riley. Reg, good morning. How are you doing today? I'm just doing fine. Thanks for having me. As I mentioned, just elected to the post, national commander, to head up the AMVETS team over the next year. We're going to talk about that shortly. But first, let's talk about Reed Riley and exactly who Reed Riley is. So, Army veteran, where are you from? When did you join? What did you do while you were in? Uh, I was in uh, 1970 to 74, uh, stationed right in Gaithersburg, Maryland the whole time at a uh, Nike site. Uh, we were uh, involved in what was then called a RADCOM, Army Air Defense Command. And uh, we worked with the uh, missiles, and uh, at that time, they were the Nike Hercs. Mm. And we did that for four and three and a half years in Rockville, in Gaithersburg. Four years, and then it comes time to leave the Army for you. What do you remember about that time in your life? I know it's a different era. There weren't all the programs that we have for veterans today, for the, uh, the soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines leaving the service. What do you remember about your time when it was time to leave? Well, about a week before I left, uh, uh, my buddy and I from West Virginia, we were talking about what we were going to do. He was going to go into stock car racing, and I was going to go into uh, broadcasting. Oh, wow. And uh, I went out, uh, we got ETS'd out on uh, July 11th of 74, and uh, applied for uh, school at uh, Columbia School of Broadcasting in Pittsburgh. Went there for two years and graduated uh, and worked at small-time radio. Uh, like they say on that WKRP studio uh, up and down the dial. Um, 
did that for about six, seven years and got tired of moving around and wasn't really getting that far advanced in radio, getting kind of a little disappointed. So a friend of mine says, hey, uh, the railroad is hiring. So I says, well, let's go down and see. And at that time, I was starting to see somebody on, on a serious side, and she didn't want me moving around. And uh, she had a good career with uh, the telephone company then. So I uh, went down to the railroad, and I got hired, and my buddy didn't. <laughs> oh, wow. But uh, 37 years later, I retired from the railroad as a maintenance way foreman. 37 years working on the railroads. I mean, that, that really brings the song. He has been working on the railroad all the live long day and for many days. Quick question. As you mentioned, your buddy going into stock car racing, you going into radio. Did your buddy that went into stock car racing, I mean, are you going to pop a big surprise on us and be like, and his name was Dale Earnhardt Jr.? No, no. He, uh, he was just a local. Uh, he was a star in West Virginia there. Uh, he, he raced local uh, half mile, quarter mile tracks, dirt and asphalt. Was it difficult for you when you left the Army as far as, you know, you found the Columbia School of Broadcasting out there in Pittsburgh? But, I mean, was there anything that was set up at the time? We're talking mid-'70s here to kind of help you as you transitioned out from no, the Army? You, you had your uh, two-hour um, uh, mandatory meeting that you had to go to. to uh, and they, they informed us of, of what was out there as far as, uh, like, the VSOs. And uh, one of those that was mentioned was AMVETS. And I knew that there was an AMVETS in, um, in uh, my hometown. And uh, my father was a member there, and uh, uh, we just um, got involved with them. Uh, uh, took out the advice of the uh, sergeant there, and he says, um, you have to think ahead. You know, your future is now in your hands, not ours, and uh, make the most of it. And, you know, decide what you want to do with the rest of your life. And I thought radio was going to be it, but it didn't turn out to be that way. <clears throat> no regrets, but um, uh, I've had a good life so far. Uh, Especially uh, when I got involved with AMVETS, uh, and that was in, I, they signed me up uh, 1974. Um, we were looking for a softball sponsor for our team, and then we went up there and a bunch of World War II Korean vets uh, took us in. Uh, they knew that we were their future in order for them to stick around, and it worked out well. And uh, after I got done playing softball, we started getting involved in the organization itself. And uh, I ran through the, I was post commander there uh, 13 out of 17 years. Uh, decided to run through the state, uh, became a region commander, and worked my way up through uh, the chairs in the department, became uh, uh, department commander 2003, 2004. And then uh, went back home and uh, worked around the community, getting involved in organizing Color Guard and and getting our uh, our uh, other local uh, VSOs involved in, in community activities. And uh, we then decided to uh, take on a job as deputy provost marshal on a national level with AMVETS. Did that for 14 years and then decided to uh, run through the chairs. And here I am today. As the national commander, newly elected 2018-19 to 19 national commander of AMVETS, Reg Riley is in studio with us here at Connecting Vets. What was it about AMVETS that made you first fall in love with the organization? Because you've dedicated, obviously, over the years, countless hours to AMVETS while also working a full-time job for 37 years on the railroad. What was it about the organization that really hooked you in? Well, <clears throat> when we first went there, um, there was about 11 or 12 of us, all veterans, uh, just recently out. And uh, like I said, we were looking for a sponsor for a softball team. But they took us in. Um, 
you know, the, the greatest generation, the World War II veterans and the Korean veterans, took us in. Uh, and it didn't matter uh, uh, what the, our, our race, our creed, our religion, any, it didn't matter. Uh, and, and some guys who had seen service in Vietnam, some guys who didn't, it didn't matter to the Ambets. You were a veteran, honorably discharged. You served your country. Now it's time for us to give back a little. And uh, the other, at that time, the other VSOs had their certain um, qualifications, which some of our people couldn't meet, but they did meet with AMVETS. And uh, that, that's what was the seller for us. Um, I mean, if you're good enough to put on a uniform, you're good enough to serve, you should be good enough to belong to that organization. There you go. And to this day, AMVETS remains the most inclusive of all of the VSOs. I mean, there are restrictions on who can join the American Legion, restrictions on who can join the Veterans of Foreign Wars. And I fully understand why those are in place. AMVETS, if you wore the uniform, you are eligible for membership in the organization. And for someone like Reed Riley is proof that you can join up uh, just by someone looking to sponsor a softball team, (laughs) end up becoming a post commander, working in the region and then nationally. And now elected as national commander Reach for the year that you are national commander what's your plan of action and what is going to be kind of the, the overarching theme of the year of Reach riley for amvets well when i was first vice commander uh we've kind of reached out to our best kept secret in the entire nation is our female veterans mm. uh, who weren't getting enough recognition uh as far as being a veteran uh They'd come into an organization and sit down, and the guy would say, well, the ladies' auxiliary meets over there. Well, no, I'm a veteran. And we kind of brought that out, not, not just last year, but the last couple of years, AMVETS have been reaching out to the female veteran. And this year, uh, we're going to try and reach out even further and bring in more people, uh, uh, females, to, to our organization on each level, post level, region level, department, and national. Uh, it, it, it's time that's well overdue and uh the more respect that these female veterans are getting the more they're going to help our organization because nobody i think is more together and getting things done than a woman <laughs> well yeah i certainly in my family that argument is uh <laughs> very true i can i can validate that at least from my anecdotal experience why do you think it is? I mean, you've been involved in the veteran community for you know forty plus years now uh, since you left the service in the mid seventies. Why do you think it is that the women who served during that time are only now starting to get their due? I mean, they've they've been a significant percentage of the military for quite some time. Why do you think it is that the veteran organizations, in particularly, haven't paid as much attention to them as their male counterparts? Well, mostly because it was the good old boys club. Uh, you know, the especially the the different organizations. In the different posts that have canteens where the guys would just all go after work and, you know, have their have their own little little uh, time together. Uh, and uh, I don't think uh, my father's generation uh, didn't really consider the uh, women who were nurses during the war, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, uh, all the way down the line. Uh, even to this day, the uh, young women they're, they're not just nurses; they're they're combat. People, they're uh, technicians. They're and they're involved in all as- aspects of the military, and uh, they it's just been brought to light over the last the last I'd say ten years where people uh, the the men in the organization are recognizing the female veteran more and more. And back then too, 
once they were out, they they were concerned about raising a family too. So, you know, they they had to take care of their priorities first. But uh, now the recognition's finally come around, and 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 I'm glad to see some of the uh, older uh, female veterans coming around. And and, and the Envets organization has a lot of uh, older female veterans who who are active as far as uh, their ability to get around and because of their age and that. But they're helping our, our younger our female veterans to come in and get comfortable with the organization. We're speaking with Reed Riley, newly elected national commander of AMVETS. When we talk about reaching out to the uh, the woman veteran population, the female veterans out there, what do you think the first step that an organization like AMVETS takes or the next step that AMVETS takes to try and bring more of those women who wore the uniform into the fold? Well, my program last year, uh, I was in charge of membership uh, and I had a packet that had an application and uh, if you know that that person female was a veteran you just walk up to her start a conversation and it's just two simple words just ask mm. and make them aware of what the AMVET organization is all about what we have to offer them and what they can do for us as much as we can do for them yeah. And what are some of the things that over the years as an AMVETS member, you've noticed that the organization can do for people? You told us about why you kind of fell in love with the organization, the fact that it was so inclusive. It didn't matter what your background was. You wore the uniform. You're eligible for membership. You got to go in there. What are some of the best things that you've seen over the years that AMVETS has done for the membership? And what would you like to see more of in the coming year? Well, over the years, I've seen, I've seen our organization grow. Uh, and, um, like I said, that we we, it doesn't matter. Um, we take in uh, applications from all over the country, from all ethnic backgrounds. Uh, we we encourage, uh, like I said, the the female veteran. Um, over the years, I have seen the the camaraderie uh, a lot better and a, a lot more um, adjustable. Uh, you can. Uh, be comfortable with with the guy or lady who you're sitting next to, whether it be in a canteen or or, or a, a memorial function or a dedication. Uh, the the AMVET people seem to be a lot more friendlier and approachable. Certainly seems to be the case. Now, Reg, this job over the next year is going to take a lot. It's going to require a lot of travel. You're going to be going to a lot of meetings. You're going to meet a lot of important people. We're talking world leaders. I, I know the president has been at some AMVETS events over the last uh, couple of years uh, that, since I've been talking to Joe. Uh, are, are, you, are you up to the challenge? Are you looking forward to it? How, how are you preparing for this next busy year? Well, <clears throat> 40, 44 years uh, has gotten me to where I am right now. And uh, um I was elected by by the body, uh, which means to me that uh, they have belief in me, and I believe in this organization. And and uh, I'm the way I look at it. The president puts his pants on the same way I do. Yep. And it, it naturally, whether you like or dislike whoever the president is, he's still the the man in charge, and he deserves his his or her respect. Uh, however, it's going to be in the future. But um, yeah, I'm. I feel that I'm ready for the job, and and the traveling ain't going to bother me. Uh, I like to travel, uh, especially on the train. But it takes too long to get anywhere on the train. <laughs> it sometimes can. Of course, when, when Reed walked in, I thought to myself, 
Any man with a mustache like that is ready for anything that comes his way. He's going to be able to take care of business, and that's what Reed Riley is aiming to do over his year in office as national commander. Uh, Joe, when you heard Reed Riley was going to be your new boss, essentially, your new national commander over at AmVets, uh, what did you think about that? I'm very excited. One, he has, uh, as we've talked about on this show before, the importance of our national commander here. Um, in addition to the leadership, of course, is they really keep us grounded. And Reed has been all over the, the country for the last um, many decades, as he said. And he, he really has his finger on the pulse of what's happening in the veterans community. And he's able to bring that to headquarters and bring that to our staff and make sure that we are, when we're talking to Congress or to the president, and uh, uh, the commander will be meeting with Vice President Pence uh, here in just a couple hours this morning, um, those messages he's going to bring are the real messages, what our veterans out there are really thinking, what they're experiencing, what they need, and what they want. And um, and as he's already talked about with the women veterans, it's obviously a, a key need um, for our organization to be able to have better outreach there. And uh, bringing that mindset to us has been very valuable. Well, it's over one in 10 veterans now are females, and they're the largest growing segment of the population uh, if a VSO wants to truly represent all veterans, they need to go out there and and look for those women veterans, try to get them to join. It's also going to be important for the survival of any VSO. As the World War II and Korea generation are leaving us day after day, there are mo- fewer and fewer of them around. That was a huge chunk of the veteran service organizations. I mean, AMVETS essentially grew out of the Korean War, if I'm not correct, wasn't it? Or World War II? World War II. World War II. We're the first organization after World War II. The first post-World War II, yeah. So there you go. My apologies for getting that wrong about the Korea thing. I'm, I'm not perfect, I know. One of the challenges with women veterans is that many, historically, many women veterans did not consider themselves veterans hmm. when they were kept out of combat. Um, by law uh, for a long time before this, um, the present day conflicts. And so they have historically not felt welcome uh, in, in a lot of the organizations. I think all the organizations are working to change that. Um, but as we pride ourselves in being the most inclusive veteran service organization that's congressionally chartered, uh, it's, it's really a, a serious focus for us because we don't require you to be a combat veteran to join our organization or even have served during a war. Um, about for almost 40% of our members uh, would not be eligible for the other large veterans organizations because of that. The message of inclusiveness sounds, Reed, like it's going to be a big part of uh, your time as national commander. When you think about what the future of AMVETS is, uh, what do you think the future of the organization is? How do you view that? What do you see coming down the road as someone who's been involved in it for so long? Well, I, my picture uh, for the future of AMVETS is uh, to continue to grow and I know we will continue to grow and bringing in to light the uh, female veteran is is definitely going to help us grow because not only just having a female as a veteran, her spouse is probably a veteran or maybe not, but it's still bring them into our subordinate organizations such as the sons. And uh, I I see that as, as a, as a way for us to grow Uh, the spouse to come in and uh, whether it's the male or the female who is the veteran, sometimes uh, they both are. So, and, and, and if you get one to join, the other one's going to join. That's often true. And I, I think of another VSO, actually. We were talking to uh, you know past national commander now of the Legion, Denise Rohan. When they came looking for her, they wanted her husband to join. She said, well, I'm a veteran and I'm eligible. And they said, no, nah, we don't need you. She kind of showed them by taking over yeah. the top spot in yeah. that organization. 
Speaking of the other VSOs, how important do you think teamwork is for the groups like AMVETS, VFW, Legion, DAV? How important do you think it is to be able to present a united front on as many issues as possible? Well, I think the the VSOs should all work together. Uh, Sure, we all uh, strive for membership, but uh, uh, putting that aside, uh, we should all work together to uh, benefit our veterans as far as working with the the people on the Hill here and uh, and getting our message across, uh, a united front is is better than a, a split uh, uh, front. So, I, I think that I see down the line, maybe, maybe not in my lifetime, but or, uh, there's going to be just one VSO, hmm. uh, and hopefully, if that does come about, it means less and less conflicts and and hopefully a better world. But, yeah. Uh, I look at it. I, I look at it right now as to work together and, and and to be in touch with each other. If we get to a point where there's zero veterans left, where the you know the military has basically become obsolete, uh, that's probably a long way down the line, if ever. But boy, that'll be one great day. We're speaking with Reed Riley, newly elected national commander of AMVETS. Reed, as Joe just mentioned, you're meeting with the vice president, Vice President Pence, later on today. He's probably not going to be listening to the show, so uh, don't feel like you need to hide anything from him to really uh, surprise him with anything. Uh, how are you preparing for that conversation, and what are the main points that you want the VP to know about what's going on in the veteran community? Just about uh, what you just said, what's going on in the veterans community and how we ask for their help and, and their support and um uh, the vice president, he's a pretty pretty open guy. He he's he really actually when you talk to him, he listens. And uh, uh, I look forward to meeting him again. There you go. And Joe, of course, y- you work in D.C. You've met with the president, the vice <coughs> president. You've met with just about everybody. Secretaries uh, of the VA, defense, all that good stuff. How open and receptive are they to the concerns of the veteran community? Have you found in the in the current administration? I found the current administration and certainly. Uh, Congress is, is very open to listening. Um, we are moving into a really important topic right now with them, and uh, if we have the opportunity, we'll probably bring this up with the Vice President today, uh, the Blue Water Navy, uh, which I know you're right. well aware of. Um, there's a bill that the House has passed, and we are pushing hard now to make sure the Senate votes on this same bill to extend the benefits and the presumptives um, to Navy veterans who did not go into country into Vietnam, but were still exposed to Agent Orange. They were exposed to Agent Orange by having equipment or actually having raw Agent Orange on their on, on board their ships yeah. and things like that. And so we have a lot of sailors out there who have been uh, suffering from the different elements that that caused, a lot of different cancers, heart disease, things like that, or they've already passed and their families have been experiencing that. Uh, we're finally to the point now where we'll be able to provide those veterans or their families the compensation and the care that they deserve and they've earned. Um, and, and unfortunately right now, the administration has come out and said, hey, if you pass this, this will be catastrophic for the VA and we will have huge backlogs in our claim system. Uh, it could produce even more problems in access to health care. Uh, our answer to that is you have to do what you, what's right here. And if that means spending more money, then that's what you need to do. And if that means expanding your capabilities on VHA or uh, VBA, uh, the benefits or the healthcare side, that's what we need to do. Uh, so right now we have a pretty strong message to the president that he needs to do what's right at this point. Right. Yeah, the VA coming out and saying essentially that they don't want to uh, accept the Blue Water Navy issue because of uh, essentially the financial issues. And then they're 
reasoning behind it seems to be, well, we can't go and get water samples. It was too long ago. Oh, yeah, well, you should have thought of that so long ago when this issue was first coming up. Another issue that the VSOs seem to be pretty much in lockstep on. I mean, we had Carlos Fuentes, legislative director of the VFW last week, telling us he didn't really care what the VA wants. The VA's job is uh, to do what they're told, not to do what they want. Is that kind of how AMVETS is looking at it? I mean, what have you told the VA about what their response to this issue has been? We've told the VA that we understand that this is going to be significantly challenging to them logistically to be able to process these claims, the same as when Agent Orange first became a presumptive for those who did step foot into Vietnam. So the bottom line is we have to be basing this on values, not on not on money. And we, we've had, we've, we as a country made a decision to go into Vietnam. We've made a decision to use Agent Orange, which at that time, I get it, they didn't know or... Some people didn't know some of the, the terrible side effects that it would have. The bottom line is you have to do what's right at this point. You absolutely do. Well, we've been speaking with AMVETS Executive Director Joe Chanelli and the newly elected National Commander for the 2018-19 timeframe, Reg Riley. Reg, Joe, want to thank both of you so much for joining us today. And Joe, if people want to find out more about AMVETS, if they want to read up on Reg and see about his background and keep track of all the amazing stuff that he's going to do, like meeting with Vice President Pence later today, how can they go about doing that? So we're on every social media platform at AMVETS HQ. And if you want to read more about our commander or see things in uh, the blog, especially as he starts traveling around the country, amvets.org is the place for it. Amvets.org is the website. Reed Riley is the man at Amvets now, national commander. Reed, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for uh, taking on what's going to be a tough job to keep make sure that veteran uh, issues are kept at the forefront. We really appreciate the work that you're doing over there, and uh, we wish you the best of luck over the next year. Oh, I appreciate it, but the gentleman sitting next to me is uh, making it a lot easier to do. Ah, don't give him too much credit. <laughs> I, you don't, Come on, we thank, know this guy. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, and it's been a pleasure today on The Morning Briefing. As always, we'll be back with a Friday show tomorrow. I'll be here for that one, and then early next week, Monday through Wednesday, I'll actually be down in Florida for the Military Influencer Conference as I'm emceeing that event. Jake Hughes will be hosting the show over those days, but great show coming up tomorrow. We're going to talk about Navy Peacoats. Why is the Navy trying to get rid of them? And what are the companies that make them doing to try and change their mind? You're going to find out tomorrow when we play our interview with Max Brickle. This has been the Morning Briefing. On behalf of Jake Hughes and myself, Eric Dame, we'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. 
Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.